questions, let me, uh, let me be sure that I kind of talk for a moment about what the supper really means to us. We know that it's just not a, an act to perform. If we're here to perform an act, we're going to miss it. You're not going to understand it. You're not going to have a sense of connection with God. It, it, so it's, it, it's not an act that we perform. And it's not just a command to be followed. Now, it is a command. It's an imperative. God gave this ordinance to the church. He expects us to do it, but he expects us to do it in the right way. So it can't just be a command that we follow. There has to be a devotion in it, that, that we sense the importance of it and the preciousness of it as well. There's deep symbolism for us in taking the elements. and It's intensely spiritual. That's why a little bit earlier I just mentioned it's intensely an act of worship. I think perhaps... One of the greatest acts of worship a church can do, okay? And so while it's not an act that we perform, not just a command that we do, well, we have to recognize, dear people, that it's a communion that we share. Now, what does communion mean? Well, let me give you a Tom definition. Communion is a bonding together, a bonding together of believers around a very important truth. That Jesus died for your sin. That Jesus was buried according to the scriptures. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And he did it to accomplish redemption for his people. That in and of, it, in and of itself makes it a deeply spiritual and a supreme act of worship. Now, look with me in verse 24. Here's the first question. Why did Jesus do what he did? On Satan's, perhaps his finest hour, he thought. On what would be thought of as the worst moment in world history. Verse 24 says, The Lord gathered his people together and he gave thanks. The word thanks is the word Eucharist. It's a word which means to be grateful. Think about that. On the worst night, perhaps, of his life, on a night that, that he would be marred beyond human identification, when the complete wrath of God would be unleashed as the doors of heaven would be opened against sin and he would become sin. On that night, our Lord gathered his people together and our Lord gave thanks. Why would he do that? Why would he, on that night, why would he give thanks? Let me give you a couple things to consider. First thing I, I think he gave thanks for is because he knew that the plan had been followed perfectly. In his last prayer before he left, in John 17, he said, I have glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work. He could give thanks because he knew that everything God the Father wanted him to do, he had done it. Hebrews 10.9 says, I have come to do thy will. He could give thanks on the worst night of human history because our Lord knew it was the best night of human history. He knew that he was born to die. And he died a perfect 
death because he lived a perfect life, a, a law, perfectly law-keeping life. And he accomplished the plan of the Father. Secondly, I think he knew that the purpose was completely completed exactly as well. You see, he didn't die for himself. In the verses we just read, two very precious words are given to us. For you. What happened on that atrocious night was never about him. was never about his glory or his fame or anything else. It was all about God. And it was all about his people. Don't forget those two precious words for you. And when we take the supper in a few moments, when we worship together in a few moments, would your mind feast on everything he did? He did for you. And you're going to be remembering, and you're going to be reflecting on what he did because he did it for you, beloved. Second question, why did he say what he said? Twice in this passage, Jesus says, remember me. Now, why would he do that? Because he was weak? Or because he was soft? Or perhaps because something was lacking in him? No. He said, remember me. Because what he did, he did for sinners. He was wanting us to remember the sacrifice of Calvary. He was wanting us to understand and recall back an understanding of the atonement, the sacrifice on the mercy seat for sin. You see, beloved, in this day of easy believism, in this day of name it, claim it theology, a day that shifts the focus and intent away from him and away from what he did on Calvary, Jesus calls us back to focus not on a man-centered theology, but on a God-centered theology. Verse 24, he says, for you. But in that, he's not placing over-importance on man's goodness. Rather, he's placing importance on man's badness. The Bible says, a soul that sinneth shall die. So he said that we should recall his death and bring back to memory his death through the symbols of the juice and the bread. He wants us to remember that it was vicarious, that it was on behalf of others, that Jesus substituted himself for you, and he substituted himself for me on that cross. It was vicarious in the sense that he did it for us. But it was victorious. For you see, on the cross, when he took the complete wrath of God. God accepted the sacrifice. Oh, beloved, there's nothing in the atonement that remotely indicates the goodness of man. Rather, the badness, the exact opposite, the badness of man. And I think we have to be careful that we don't lose the preciousness of the atonement in this culture in which we live that, that's so centered on man and man's ideas and man's comfort. We have to realize he didn't die for everyone in a general sense. That demeans the atonement for not all will be saved. 
He died for a specific, particular death for those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. He died for some, for some of us who would receive his mercy, those who would be saved. Oh, dear people, there was nothing lacking in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a complete sacrifice. And God accomplished exactly what he wanted when he gave his son to die on Calvary for sin. And if you're saved this morning, that ought to thrill your heart, that ought to humble your soul, that he would do that for you. This week as I had my son and his family home with us from uh, their little trip home from the mission field, and I was thinking about our supper, and I was thinking about maybe some of the things the Lord would just have me say in this short devotional time. I had the opportunity to, to spend just a little time alone with my grandkids. And they're at a precious age, four and two. They don't get any better than that. If I had a shot, I'd shoot them and make them stay four and two, you know. Except I'd like the young one to be housebroken. But other than that, I'd... I'd uh, I'd keep them at that age. And uh, my mind was kind of on this, but I was with them. And I began to watch Maggie. And I began to watch Caleb. And I thought about the world that they're going to have to grow up in. Macedonia is a pretty safe place where they live, but uh, no place is safe today, really. I, I thought about their trip 12-hour trip or so over and back and, and all of that. And, and I, 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 I began to pray. I said, you know, dear God, now that my dad's gone, I guess I'm the patriarch of this home, you know. And I want to pray protection over my grandkids that wherever they go, as they serve the Lord overseas with their parents, that God, you'll protect them. And then I read, remember saying to the Lord, you know, Lord, if someone has to die, I'd rather it be me than these two precious kids you've given to us. Someone had to die because of sin. But God decided it was more precious for his son than for you. That only he could satisfy only he could meet the demands of the law. Only he, through his shed blood on Calvary, could accomplish redemption. So what does it mean then that he did what he did and he said what he said? What does it mean for us as we now come to this Eucharist, this giving of thanks, the word means to, to be grateful what does it mean for us to participate in being grateful? Three things, very quickly. Number one, it means we look back. Jesus said twice, remember me. Go back in that historical moment when Jesus died for sin, for your sin, and worship him who'd hung on Calvary's cross. Look back. And then look in and ask yourself, was this for me? 
for me. I gave Maggie a gift the other day. And she said, her eyes got big. And she said, for me? This is for me? Gail, you gave them two suckers at our senior adult. You know, oh, you didn't give me one, though. You gave them one. And they came in with these, each of them had these big supper and suckers, and, and, and they said, look what, we, this is for us. Oh, dear people, look in. What he did, he did for you. And worship him who hung on Calvary's cross. I think that's why verse 28 a little later says, let a man examine himself. Examine yourself. Are you of the faith? Do you realize that Calvary was for you, that he died for you, and are you living in obedience? Can you worship he who hung on Calvary's cross for you? And then look up. Not just look back at what he did. Not just look in and what that means to you personally. But then look up. The last words of verse 26. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Some of you wanted to be, have wanted to be preachers. Well, here's your opportunity. That's what it means. It means you're proclaiming his death. How long? Till he comes. You know what that tells us? That tells us that Jesus is coming again. Cleansed through his blood, look up. You're consummate, the way it's talked about by theologians. Your consummate redemption draws close. Look up, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And worship him who hung on Calvary's cross. Oh, he didn't die. He lives forever. And he's coming back. I believe soon. I'm not sure I'm going to die. I'm getting older. Maybe I will. But he's coming back. And in God's eternal time plan, he'll come back right on schedule. And he'll come back right on time. And he'll come back for you. Let's pray. We're going to have just a, a short time of reflection.